Matthew 13, verses 44 through 52. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Let him who has ears to hear, hear these words of Jesus. We come into these last four parables in Matthew 13, and, and we see that they're parables. They were parables for the disciples. We see that Jesus spoke them just to, just to those twelve. Because he'd gone in at the parable of the weeds when he explained it, they left the crowds and went into the house, and that's where they still are. Jesus speaks to them too, to the disciples after they'd gone in. And he explained that parable of the weeds, and he spoke these to them. Again, we see him describing the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. We, we hear that repetitive phrase coming up. Uh, we hear in these parables in some ways, an expansion upon the parables that he's already spoken, that have been recorded by Matthew for us. We hear again of something that was hidden, like the leaven and the dough, of something small, like the mustard seed, that there will be both righteous and evil coexisting for a time, but that time will give way to a moment of division and, for some, enduring destruction, and for the rest, eternity with him. Finally, Jesus, as all good teachers in that final parable, as all good teachers they're prone to do at the conclusion of a lesson or some teaching, they ask about understanding. They check for comprehension, if you will. And they say, yes, we've understood. The question comes to us as well, have we understood? It's to be our desire to understand and to believe these precious words, for they speak truth and life. They speak of the kingdom of heaven which Jesus has revealed through these parables, is present and there's a fullness that's yet to come. No doubt we'll grow in our understanding. And there are depths to Scripture that until our final days, uh, we'll continue to plumb. But do we desire to understand and to grow in understanding? That's, that's evidence to us of the presence of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit within our hearts and our minds to shape us and form us. Do we desire to receive the wisdom that God says He will give if we would ask? And having understood, will we share what God has revealed to us in these stories and his son and what he came and accomplished? So as we come into these parables, we come into these, these first two, the parables of the hidden treasure and of the pearl of great value, or in some translations, the pearl of great price. We see here parables of the kingdom's surpassing value. Uh, you, could, you could call the parable of the hidden treasure, if you wanted to, the big surprise. And so we meet this man, we're introduced to this man who he found covered up in a field, this hidden treasure, and he joyfully goes and sells all that he has and he buys the field. Well, in this time and in this place, it's a time of no banks, no places to deposit things that we want to keep secure. 
no place to really securely store things of value. And so the practice was common to take those things, to put them into a clay pot, and to bury them on the land that you had. In the hopes that if it was an invading army that would come, that you would survive and you would be able to return to your land and the things of value would, would still be there. But in the case that your people weren't victorious and you were relocated and eventually someone comes back into that land or settles on that land, it could be that they would discover this treasure that was buried, these valuable things that were hidden away. And so whoever it was that obtained that land, if they would find it because that land was theirs, it would belong to them. We would say possession, right? It's nine-tenths of the law. Since they had that land now, they discover that, and, and it's now theirs. If a servant found it, because it wasn't their land, but they're working for the landowner, then the treasure that was found belongs to the owner. It seems in this case that this field was unowned, and someone found it, and he goes and he sells all he has, and he buys the field. We've seen this in our own day, because there are those that still don't trust banks. You can have that discussion on your own time in other places. But we've seen this historically, uh, even as recently and more recently, but probably one of the famous uh, ish illustrations in our area would be Lewis and Clark. As Lewis and Clark went through, one of the things that they would do is they would cash things that they needed for their return, which a cash is just the word that we would apply to digging a hole, trying to make it secure so things would stay dry, because they couldn't carry everything with them. And on their return, they would have a detailed map and they'd be able to get those. Some of those successfully stored what they needed. Others didn't work out so well. But it's a practice that has continued even into our own day. But what about this treasure? This treasure, it was hidden. Because they wanted to keep it safe. It was hidden, similar to the yeast in the dough. And it brings about a significant change. And the change in this parable is in this man. He finds it and he recognizes the worth. But in order to recognize the worth, he had to find it. Okay? He sees it and he understands its worth. And he seems to have stumbled upon it by accident. You can call it a delightful surprise, if you will. He's working in the field and he comes across it. Oh, what is this? He pulls it out and he sees what's in there. As he recognizes the value, says that he sold all that he had to go and buy that field. So what was he willing to give up? Everything. He sold all that he had so that he would have this field. And someone would come by and say, what do you got? I've got this. What did you do to get it? I got rid of everything. So you can't work it now? I'm not worried about that. This is worth more than everything. That's what he valued it as. It appears also that there was no hesitation on the part of this man to rid himself of everything he had in the world to obtain this treasure. Surpassing value. There's no hang up. He finds it and it says, in his joy. He wasn't walking to the place to buy it, hemming and hawing, oh, but I really enjoy this thing I have, or I really enjoy this thing that I have. He goes and he joyfully divests himself of everything in order that he can have, well, in his mind, more than everything. There's no, no hesitation. So he had a big surprise. And then Jesus, in this next one, is really the, the, the meaning is, is similar, but there's different methods here. In the hidden treasure, the man discovered it by surprise. In the pearl of great value or the pearl of great price, we would say if, if the one was a big surprise, this one was the culmination of a big search. Because this one was a merchant, and what was he doing? He was engaged in daily searching out pearls. 
you wanted to find? You want to find if you're if you're a merchant of pearls and you're daily searching for pearls, you want to find the pearls that are what? The most valuable. Pearls were rare in the time of Jesus, and thus they were highly valued and prized. They were they were one of those precious gems that are so precious that when you read the description of the heavenly city in, Jer in Revelation 21, 21, the 12 gates are each made of a giant pearl. It's just interesting how they work through Scripture. But this man is a pearl merchant. He's been engaged in a diligent search for pearls. And as his searching's been ongoing, he discovers one of exceedingly great value in comparison with others. This pearl was the climax of a careful quest. Like the mustard seed, this pearl was likely small. It was small, but it was of such wonderful refinement that it was of surpassing worth, greater worth than any that he'd found before. And in fact, in his judgment, worth more than what? Anything else he would ever find. And so as he finds it, Jesus tells us again what he did. He found this one of great value and he went and he sold all that he had and bought it. So did he sell all of his equipment that he would use for pearl hunting, saying, I don't need to hunt for any more pearls because I found this one. That's worth more than anything else. His response, it's identical. Do you, do, you, do you see that? He found it, he went, sold all he had, and bought it. It's identical to that other man. It appears there was no hesitation on his part to rid himself of everything he had in this world to obtain his treasure for this treasure of surpassing value. In broad strokes, we see in these two parables, one of the things revealed to us is the ways in which people come into the kingdom, isn't it? A big surprise, a big search. The grace of God in opening eyes comes in both ways, doesn't it? Sometimes it comes by surprise. Sometimes it comes following a diligent search. In both cases, though, we notice the consistency. One must be given eyes to see. One must be given ears to hear, because without those eyes, without those ears, the value of the kingdom will not be discerned. It has to be revealed. And we have, we have examples of this in Scripture. Probably the one that, that is the one that's by surprise that maybe comes to your mind first is the Apostle Paul. He was sure surprised. He was on a trip not to glorify God. Not to, I mean, he thought he was glorifying God. He thought he was serving God. But Jesus showed up on a road to Damascus, and that was a pretty big surprise. And we see the instantaneous change in his life. So Paul on his way to Damascus, big surprise. But there was another one that we met earlier in Acts, the Ethiopian eunuch. Remember, he was reading the scriptures. He'd been to Jerusalem for one of the, one of the pilgrim festivals, and, and he's traveling back, and God says, Hey, Philip, there's a place I want you to go, and I want you to see this guy, and when he comes by, I want you to talk to him. Well, it happens that this Ethiopian eunuch, he was searching the scriptures. He was searching, but he didn't know what. He didn't know the answers. He didn't know who he was talking about. And Philip begins with that passage, that scripture, and moving forward to tell him about who it is. So this man, this Ethiopian eunuch, he'd been on a search, and it took Philip. God got Philip into the right spot where he could tell him, and this diligent search comes, and he is, his eyes are open. And he sees water, and he believes what Philip has told him, and he says, here's water. What's to stop me from being baptized? Do you believe that Jesus is the Savior? Yes, I do. Well, then let's go. 
But in both of those cases, in the Apostle Paul, with the Ethiopian eunuch, eyes were opened. Why? By the Spirit. And we could, we could go through more examples over the course of all of history. You could look at your own, and where would you put yourself? Was it by surprise? Was it after, after a search? Because the salvation of every man, woman, and child likely comes in one of these two ways. Some who are saved by surprise understand this. Sometimes they're even those who have been raised in the church. They've heard it. Maybe they knew all the right answers. They remain blind and deaf. But then, I mean, it's not uncommon to hear a story of someone who, in days of visitation, they would come and it's an un, someone who, well, my mom or my dad or my parents always took me to church and I've heard this a hundred times, but why not, pastor, go ahead. What's a hundred and one or a thousand and one? And then they get a call a week later. I heard something I'd never heard before. And I believe. Someone who'd been in the presence and heard it all of a sudden was saved by surprise. There are some who were saved through the search. Those who wanted to know the truth for whatever reason, but they gave no serious countenance to Christianity until they were driven to it by logic or by reason or by something else, or in some cases in a desire to disprove Christianity. C.S. Lewis falls into that camp. He was searching. And his search drove him to this. And it's not that he worked it out himself, it's that God opened his eyes. But he's an example in more recent times. But the point, no matter how they were saved and now, and now follow Christ, everyone who comes to and trusts Christ, what did they have to do? They said, this is worth more than everything. I'm departing. Because this is of surpassing value. It's the story of Pilgrim. If you're familiar with John Bunyan and the Pilgrim's Progress. He discovers the wonderful value of the gospel and what's available in Christ. And as he departs, he plugs his ears so that he wouldn't be pulled back by good things that God has given him. But he plugs his ears so that he might be drawn ever forward to that celestial city. He left everything behind. And the other thing that's a benefit to us and that we need to recognize is no matter how we were saved or those around us were saved, whether it was by surprise or it was after a search, no matter how we were saved, trusting Christ, following Christ, believing in Christ is a benefit to us. Not just my own faith, but the faith of the person to my left and my right. One in front of me, the one behind me. No matter how they were saved, and now follow Christ, every one of us who comes to and trusts Christ is a benefit. Whether we recognize it here or not, until we are gathered together at the close of this age, we rejoice in every new creation because they're part of one body. This one who found the hidden treasure and this one who found the pearl of great value, they're finding the same thing expressed differently and they're brought into one body, which is to the benefit of everyone around them and throughout the world. This teaches us the value of the kingdom. 
And what we need to understand here is Jesus isn't teaching that the kingdom of heaven can be purchased. That's not what he's saying. Hey, I found the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to go buy it. That would be to misunderstand what's being spoken here. He's speaking of the value of the kingdom of heaven. It's of such value that it's worth sacrificing whatever is necessary to be a part of it. These two men joyfully ridded themselves of everything in this world to have it. Shortly in Matthew, we're going to meet someone else who we call the rich young ruler. He's one that shows up and he checks all the boxes because he's probably in the religious leadership in some way, shape, or form because he's a ruler. But he's also young and he's got all of these things that, I mean, this is, this is grade A material, Jesus. We need to think about keeping this guy around. But he comes to Jesus and do you remember what he says? He says, good teacher, what must I do? to inherit eternal life, to receive the kingdom of heaven. You remember what Jesus said? If you would be perfect, go sell what you possess, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. He had gifts that God had given him, but he loved the gifts more than he loved the gift giver. Then he loved the greatest of all gifts. Because the Father sent His Son. He departs. He departs sad because why? Well, deep down, He does recognize the value of who Christ is. But what does He love more? He loves His stuff more. He doesn't see that pearl of great price that's before Him. He doesn't see the hidden treasure that this is God incarnate. God in the flesh. And He leaves sad. Christ exhorts those who believe in him to deny those things only which are injurious to godliness. It's not that Jesus said to everyone who's ever come to him, go sell everything and come follow me. In this case, he knew this young man. He knew what the hang-ups were. He knew what would keep hooking him and pulling back. And he says, go and get rid of this. He exhorts those who believe in him to deny those things which are injurious, which would hinder our godliness that would gain the world but lose your soul. And at the same time, he permits them to use and enjoy God's temporal favors, his gifts, as if they did not use them. He's given me this, but I don't hope in it. I hope in him I use this for his glory. Because he's of more value than anything that he's put in my hands. And that's why whatever he puts in my hands, I can put to use. I don't cling to the value of the kingdom. It's the free gift of God. And yet we are said to buy it when we cheerfully relinquish the desires of the flesh that nothing may prevent us from obtaining it. It's, it's what Paul expresses in Philippians 3. If you look at Philippians 3 later today or this week in verses 4 through 11, Paul gives you his curriculum vitae of who he is. Pharisee of Pharisees, of the tribe of Benjamin. I mean, he was, I mean, he had it in spades what it meant to be blessed by God according to the Jewish covenant. And yet he says, when Christ was revealed to him in verse 8, indeed I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, none of that counts for anything anymore because he is of so much greater value. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ 
Not that he bought him, but that he recognizes the value and says, get rid of all of this that I may have him. That he might be my everything, if you will. The parables of the treasure and of the pearl assert before us the surpassing value of the kingdom. Whether you bump into Jesus by accident or you're searching for the best religion or philosophy, the kingdom welcomes close scrutiny. Look at it. Examine it. Hunger for it. It lies within our grasp, but we must abandon all else to gain it. Jesus says it differently. If you can't serve two masters, because you will love one and hate the other, or love the other and hate the one. We have to set all of that aside and go. Because he's telling us what the value of the kingdom is. He's revealing to us in these stories that it's something that as it comes, it is easily scorned because so often we only see with fleshly eyes and we need to have eyes that have been removed. He's telling us what the value of the kingdom is. In Psalm 12, 6, he tells us that the words of the Lord are pure words like silver refined in a furnace on the ground seven times. Listen to these words because they are not just of beauty, of truth and of life. The Bible tells us to seek the mind of Christ. What does it mean? It means that we are to esteem the things that he esteems and to hate the things, to abhor the things that he hates. According to these parables, the treasure and the pearl, one of the things he esteems most highly is what? The kingdom of heaven. It's so valuable from God's perspective that people in their right mind do well to sell everything they have in order to possess it. Praise God he's in the business of giving people right minds and living hearts. Because that's how it's discerned. That's how it's discovered. A right mind and a living heart is a mind and a heart that have been awakened through the word by the power of the spirit and ones that run to the one from which it used to flee. For there is forgiveness. There is freedom. And there is a home in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. The kingdom of heaven is Christ's. Think of it this way. Christ has lived in all eternity in the kingdom of heaven. It is Christ's. And he didn't keep it to who? Himself. He brought it. And he died that you might be brought into it. Who could not otherwise be brought into it? Christ values it that highly. So the question comes, will you take the time to examine your values? Will you consider what you esteem most highly? What do you value most in this world? Because Christ makes it clear in these two parables what is of most value. Will you leave everything and cling to him? Now, in the parable of the net, Jesus speaks again something similar to the weeds and the wheat. This net that he speaks of, it would be familiar to the fishermen among his twelve, as well as to those that grew up on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. It's a net that they would put between two boats, and as those boats went, guess what it would scoop up? Any poor little unsuspecting fish in its path didn't discriminate, just grabbed them all. And as they gathered it up, it got to be full. They would bring it into shore. And then they would sit and sort. 
And it's interesting that when we come to this one, it comes out very quickly, but Jesus, what does he give us immediately without anyone asking? It's interpretation. In the, in the, in the parable of the seed, he was asked for the understanding. In the weeds and the wheat, asked for the understanding. He comes to this one, he moves right into it. He says this, when it's full, the men drew it ashore, sat down, sorted the good into containers, threw away the bad, so it will be at the end of the age. Here's the meaning. The angels will come out, separate the evil from the righteous, throw them into the fiery furnace, and that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's the only parable that he provides an immediate interpretation for. And it reiterates or re-speaks in, in different language what was communicated in the parable of the weeds. The church will grow, will be in close proximity to the world. Jesus, we're in the world, but not of it. Right? In his high priestly prayer in John 17, he says, I don't ask that you would take them out of the world, but that you would what? Preserve them. And so there's growth in the midst of this world. We're going to be in close proximity. Good and evil will be mixed together in this age. In the imagery of the net, you take that net, the more fish that get caught in that net, how much closer do they get to each other as that net fills up? I won't come and sit uncomfortably close to you. But if, you, if you're sitting next to someone and they don't object, squeeze up to them a little bit tighter because as that net pulls fish in, what happens? They get pressed closer and closer and closer and they rub up against each other. What happens when that takes place? What comes out when that takes place? When you're pressed up against those that are evil, according to the biblical de definition. Do you respond as the evil respond, or do you respond as those who have been set apart in Christ? Not calling evil good or good evil, not what I'm saying. But as they're pressed, as you're pressed, do we respond as our Savior responded? Because remember, as we engage in this world, who's your enemy? Is it those that wear a different label? Or is it those that stand behind them in the principalities and the powers? Because as we encounter those who are not in Christ, we have to remember what have they believed? The lie. What is our heart's desire in Christ? That they would be delivered from that lie. As we get closer and closer in that net, how do we go about it? Because it's going to catch all kinds of fish, but when it comes time to sort, we have to take note that there's only two kinds of fish. Good and bad. As Jesus interprets it, what? Evil and righteous. We get uncomfortable with that. We're like, well, that seems awfully black and white. Well, don't take up issue with me. You've got to take up issue with the eternal Son of God with that because I'm just repeating his words there. And we know what happens to the good, and he's told us what happens to the evil. So knowing that it's going to come, what do we do? It's a stinky fish next to me. I hope I'm delivered of it. Or that's a stinky fish next to me. I was a stinky fish too. Maybe he can change that one. Please don't call anyone a stinky fish. It's very offensive. 
But what he makes clear here is that there is going to be an end of the age. What we have to note, and maybe you noticed it already, when he talks about this parable of the net, did you notice that verse 42 and 50 are identical? Verse 42 in the parable of the wheat and the weeds and verse 50 in this parable of the net are identical. Throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's an emphasis that judgment is coming. That the end of the age is coming. And there will be a time of judgment and of dividing righteous from evil. The big sort, if you will. It's one of those things that's in our popular vernacular right now, the big sort, as we move to states and places that have policies that more agree with our dispositions. And that's on a nationwide basis. This big sort that Jesus is talking about, it's everyone throughout all of time when time comes to an end. And there's no opportunity for anything after it. You will either be sorted into the place of righteousness or in the place that he speaks of with weeping and gnashing of teeth. And what awaits those that reject him is that fiery furnace. What he's called the church to in this age is to be preserved in man's fiery furnace. And man's fiery furnace doesn't compare to the one that he's prepared. And if we wonder, the language I don't think is an accident because fiery furnace, there's one other place in scripture where that comes up just stated so clearly. And it's in Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar, because those three Jewish boys wouldn't bow down at the sound, he had it heated how hot? As hot as he could possibly heat it. And they said, God's able to deliver us, but if he doesn't, we still won't do what you've asked us to do because it's against him. And he says, fine, we'll throw you in. And he threw them into the hottest fiery furnace that man could devise. And what happened? They walked in company. In whose company? in the company of God. And he did what? Preserved them through man's fieriest furnace. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. Whatever man might devise, he is ready and able and present to walk in the midst of it. Will we walk there? And Not easy. There's some difficulty with it. But do we trust him to be present as he's been present throughout all of time for those who are his? And so he speaks for the second time of this reality of what's coming. And we know that it's not his hope that any would perish, but that all would be brought to life. And one of his main provisions for that is us. To speak of who he is, what he's done, and what's available to whosoever will come. And he finishes and he asks them, have you understood? And his disciples, they say, yep, we've understood. It's interesting, Jesus doesn't challenge them, right? I mean, they're going to reveal that they kind of understand, but there's still a whole lot of understanding to be gained. Uh, have you understood? He doesn't challenge their professed understanding, but he charges them. He charges them to use their knowledge for others. And he charges you to use your knowledge for others. Every scribe who's been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what's new and what is old. Do you get excited to show people those precious things that you have? Where did you get that? Oh, I got it here. And let me tell you the story about how I got it and what it meant. And here he says, a scribe trained for the kingdom of heaven. 
Whatever you've been given, it wasn't provided merely for your own use and benefit. It was provided for the use and the benefit of you and all of those that he's placed you among. That's what these scribes were trained for. That you would bring out the old and that you'd bring out the new. And it's not an accident. He says scribes. Scribes were the most trained of the religious leaders in that day. And here he speaks of his disciples as scribes of the kingdom. Those who will go out and teach. It's hard to keep our lives balanced though, isn't it? Because we have a tendency to emphasize learning at the expense of living. I like to learn new things. Great, do you put them into practice? Well, I know a lot of stuff. Okay. Does it shape how you live? But then you've got the others who make it so busy serving God, living, that we don't take the time to listen. What are you doing? Doing all this. Why? I have no idea. Every scribe must be a disciple. Every disciple must be a scribe. Because we're being trained. And maybe more of it's going to be in that living and less studying, but God uses everyone in every place to benefit those that are around him. I've sat in a Bible study years ago. We're like, we're really glad that this person likes to read because we're not readers, but what they read is good and it helps us. That was a reason that they'd been put there, to read things they had no interest in reading but was a benefit to them spiritually. And those people that were in that place, they were out and they were doing things and the fruit that was coming from their work was just beautiful and delicious. But it doesn't change the fact that every scribe must be a disciple, every disciple must be a scribe. The new in this. We've got the new and the old treasure. Well, the new will be the instruction from Jesus. Remember, this sits at odds with what they understood about the kingdom of God. But this new would be the instruction from Jesus, especially the truths of the kingdom. The old, it'll be the tested truths of the old covenant, what Jeremiah calls the ancient paths. It's the temptation of both the radical revolutionary as well as the conservative to value one too highly and the other too lightly. The good teacher loves great truths, whether old or new. The steward guards the treasure, but he also dispenses it as needed. He doesn't hoard it. But he dispenses both the old and the new. New principles and insights are based on old truths. That's why we still have the Old Testament and why it's important for us. New principles and insights are based on old truths. The new cannot contradict the old because the old comes out of the new. We've heard it said before that the new, the old is in the new revealed, and in the new, or in the in the old, the new is concealed, and in the new, the old is revealed. The new can't contradict the old because the old comes out of the new. Leviticus 26:10 tells us, "You shall eat old store long kept, and and." You shall clear out the old to make way for the new. The old and the new both have a place. The new without the old is mere novelty, and it won't last. But the old does no good unless it's given new applications in life today. We need both. A whole Christian takes a whole Bible, takes all of the Word of God. And so as we've considered parables these past three weeks and to the end of this chapter, famous for its abundance of parables, there's something I don't want you to miss as well. Jesus used material things. 
He used man's work. If you read over this chapter again this week, look at all of those material things and man's work that he uses. And he did it to give insight into eternal truths. Does that surprise you? Does that amaze you? Does that make you want to thank God? That our work is capable of bearing meaning? It's not meaningless. Our work is capable of bearing meaning, even, even in illustrating eternal realities. And that let that be a reminder to us that we and the world around us, where do they spring from? From God's creation. And they remain a part of God's kingdom. Hopefully that's a reminder that nothing we do is without purpose or meaning. And a continuing encouragement to do all things for the Lord. Because so often it's those little things, those little things that we don't even think about that we do them as unto the Lord and not unto men. And people go, oh, it really meant so much. And we're like, I didn't even give that a second thought. Not because I'm wonderful, but because of what God was doing. And so as we finish out today and we consider the fact that some, it's a big surprise, others, it's the fruit of a big search, maybe take the time today or over the next week Share. Share with each other how he called you into his kingdom. Whether it was sudden or over time. Because that is continually for his glory and our good. Because it bears witness to the work of the Spirit. Not just within us, but within those that he's called to be part of that one body. And at the beginning of a month in which we celebrate Thanksgiving, it gives us another reason and ability an opportunity to give thanks for that, to rejoice in it together because he's drawn us together. Take time to share. Take seriously the call to proclaim the wonder of Christ's gospel that when the final sort comes about that we've done all to proclaim to the world that which brings life and live according to it as we're pressed upon each other. Because he hasn't saved you for yourself. He saved you for those around you as well. That they would know him and that they would see his activity in you. So take time to share. Take seriously that call to proclaim and rejoice. Because you've been given of the old and the new. And you've been given the old and the new that it may be known that it may be believed, that it may be hidden in our hearts, that our head and our hands and our hearts may be renewed and empowered to do his will in every situation. Have you understood? Will you share?